As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone, and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. This week, we're talking Pepe, the ownership of Premier League clubs, and we'll chat a little about Gabby Martinelli as well. Uh, Our guest this week from The Athletic, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Hello, guys. Hello, Ian. Hey, Ian. Hello. Morning. Before we get into the uh, main bit of the pod, uh, we got two goals in the last 10 to beat Wolves on Thursday, as if you didn't know, and there were huge celebrations. Uh, (laughs) Some of them right in front and in the face of Ruben Neves, and that was excellent. Uh, And by the way, uh, the celebrations, even for the people who bring in this podcast, were not just in the stadium. I was sitting in a car at some traffic lights near my house when Laka scored the winner, and let me tell you, it was no less intense in Highgate that it was at the Emirates. Uh, James will tell you where he was in a minute, but we were wondering what's the strangest place you found out the score of an Arsenal game. Uh, James, I know where you were, but tell our listeners what was going on with you. Yeah, I was on stage. I was at Soho Theatre doing a show. And um, and can I just say, I saw the show on Tuesday and it is excellent. Uh, oh, thanks, it, Ian. And people of uh, The Athletic, go and see the show. And uh, it's just a wonderful show. And I know, Amy, you've seen it as well. It's great. Yeah, so. it's marvellous. Yeah. Ah, thanks so much for coming, guys. Really appreciate it. But, right. so I was on stage and um, a guy... I always get a few Arsenal fans in my audience and I'm very grateful for that, um, especially given that I barely talk about Arsenal, if ever, on stage. And uh, a guy crept up. There's a, there's a sections in the show where I sort of watch video clips and sit at the side. And while I was sat there on a little stool, a guy crept up and just leant into my ear and whispered, Arsenal won 2-1, 95th minute, Lacazette winner. Um, and then sort of backed away, back into the audience um, I, I mean, he, I think he was just overcome. He'd received the notification on his phone and thought, I have to tell James. Uh, and I, I have to be honest, it was actually, it was a lovely way to find out because it meant I could really stop worrying about it. I'd got on stage knowing we were losing 1-0. So, you know, uh, while I wouldn't recommend it, I know theatre security were a little bit alarmed that it happened, 
you know, I appreciated the gesture nonetheless. And <laughs> it was a, if you're going to be told any sort of scoreline, that was a good one to hear in that context because it was obviously a fantastic result and a fantastic way to win it. Yeah, there's a little bit of me that thinks, why was he looking at his phone in the middle of your yeah. show? <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, come I mean, on, Ian. You no, know no, full I... well why. <laughs> exactly, so, yeah. glance. If there's a game going on and you you just need to know what's happening, like etiquette goes a slightly out the window. It's the you're, ab- it you're absolutely right. Can I just ask, James, and I won't give away too much of it, were you in character or were you you? Do you know what's really interesting? So basically... Like I say, there are these sections of the show where, which are kind of between my bits, where I sit at the side and I, um, I, I watch these little video clips. There are a lot of like archive clips in the show. The guy came up to me afterwards in the bar and he explained that the previous time I'd sat down for an archive clip, it'd been about 60 seconds. So he thought, I'll tell him now. And then he'll have about 50 seconds to kind of compute it and recover before he's got to get up and start performing again. But obviously he doesn't know the show, so he completely misjudged it. And the clip in question, when he got up to tell me, was only about 10, 15 seconds long. So basically by the time he'd whispered to me, 95th minute winner, Lacazette, I had to be stood back up again and doing the show. So it it, it was a bit of a... uh, It messed with my head a little bit. But like I say, it probably put me in a more settled, reassured place than I was previously. When you, you tweeted about it, James, and mm. I had visions that this guy actually sort of walked on while you were in the middle of a soliloquy. So Yeah, it could have been worse. <laughs> could have been worse. And he picked his he picked his moment. But it was I interesting, like afterwards the the staff that came to me, they're like, Are you all right? Are you all right, James? What happened there? <laughs> Do you want us to introduce more security elements? Like, <laughs> we need to stop this happening. What did he say to you, this guy? Was it a threat? Was it something awful? And I had to be like, Oh, no, he was he was telling me the Arsenal score. <laughs> Imagine if he got thrown out. The poor guy, he took a risk. He could have I think he would have been show. fine. I think he would have just continued celebrating into the night. Yeah. He'd been yeah. watching the first half in the pub, I think, before the game. And, you know, it's difficult to switch off, especially when you're really... It was difficult for me to switch off. I kind of had the first half vaguely on in the background, checking the score before I went on. So, yeah, I completely understand. And... Uh, yeah, he sent me. A, he was very apologetic afterwards. I think he was really carried away, but I get it. I mean, listen, I saw the scenes from the Emirates Stadium. I think anyone who saw that score, I'm sure even you and your car, Ian, I'm sure you were carried away too. Yeah, I was glad I was sat at traffic lights, to be honest <laughs> with you, because I, I, did you, I, if did I'd you have toot? been. Did I? Did I didn't too. It just oh, seemed because well because Not in you Highgate, never know. You know, it's very <laughs> in Highgate. Nobody toots in Highgate. There's some there's signs up all over the place. <laughs> um, Amy, what about you? Strangest place? Was it a celebration? Was it a uh, was it a defeat? What what? Where did you find out? And what did you find out? Well, I was trying to think of. Uh, I, I think mo- the mo- most often times that I've. Uh, had to find out a score afterwards and not been kind of aware of it in real time is it's probably usually if you're on an aeroplane or something. Although I expect these days or in future, you, you know, you'll be able to be keeping up to date on the internet on you know from from planes more easily. But I rem- I've got two that I remember. One was um, being in Morocco years ago, driving with a friend of mine, Eugene, uh, around the Atlas Mountains. And Arsenal, I think it was a long time ago, playing Leeds. And the only way that we could pick up the World Service was sort of in the car, like finding a specific spot in the Atlas Mountains. So we drove around till we got a reception and um, sat and waited for the... 
for the final score. Um, and the other one I remember, which is also which makes me feel ancient, was being away somewhere far afield. I don't know, maybe Asia or something. I can't remember in the days of travelling around. And Arsenal played QPR in the Cup. And I arrived at wherever I was staying and got this kind of, you know, message from the reception. Ah, Miss Lawrence, we have a fax for you. And my uh, family had sent me a fax which read, nothing except in handwritten, Arsenal 6, QPR 0. And it even said the scorers, if I look at my uh, book here, it was Wiltor 2, Bergkamp Pires, Plummer own goal and Rose own goal. And that was the extent of the message. And it was quite exciting because uh, my brother's a QPR fan, so it's always a bit of a family uh, moment. So I enjoyed getting that fax. And that was as much information as you would get until you were probably back in London. Because in those <laughs> days, it was it, if you were somewhere far away, unless you got hold of an English newspaper about five days late, you would never really catch up on this stuff in the sort of no. pre-internet days. Oh, just talking of that game, I'm going to set you a small quiz. Oh, yeah. So this this, uh, this is, the date is the 27th of January, 2001. Arsenal played QPR, okay? I have no recollection of this at all. Well, fair dues. <laughs> now, uh, Dennis Bergkamp was substituted and the player who replaced him, if anyone gets it, Sorry, not Dennis Bergkamp. Perez was substituted on the 75th yeah. minute. The player who came on, if anyone gets it, I'm going to give you a thousand pounds. Thousand pounds. All right, maybe a hundred quid. Okay, it's worth 100. thinking about, uh, isn't it? A hundred quid to charity if anyone gets it. Okay, what was the date again? September the what? Uh, uh, January 2001. January 2001. Okay. Oh, do we have to guess now, or can we? Can you give us like five minutes to look on the internet? Is it a league game? <laughs> uh, it's, it's a cup, a cup game. game. Cup game. All right. Was Dennis it, uh, Berg. Sorry, Robert Perez was substituted. 100 quid, James. 100 quid on the line. Yeah. Uh, was it Omar Ritza? It's a decent guess, but no. No? Okay. All right. Was it, I think it might be a bit early, was it Moritz Voltz? Oh, no. <laughs> No, who was that? Stefan oh. Maltz. Oh, Stephen it's Maltz. almost, it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> I got a rhyming player. Do I get 20 quid for that? <laughs> uh, anyway, okay. Um, I will uh, make a small donation to charity on behalf of you both having a, having a go. Great. Right. <laughs> right. I think we did all Let's right. Let's move on. Um, well, I was going to say, um, I found out the one that stays with me, when I, I was in a, I was doing a... a a ski resort in, I think, Chamonix, I think. There used to be gigs. You used to get flown out. And and I don't ski. Um, oh. I don't ski. It's utterly ridiculous. It a I dream mean, gig. It was mad. I, I, well, the joke is Jews don't ski, right? The last time my people went up a mountain, we came down with commandments, right? That is the joke. But, uh, <laughs> but I don't. But anyway, I ended up in this ski lodge and it was uh, the night of the Champions League. Was it quarterfinal against Liverpool? The four something when that one. And I heard Theo Walcott do that amazing run and, and what an amazing run, by the way, and passed to Adebayor, I think it was, who scored the goal. And I went on stage uh, all excited and then um, 
came off to the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. So that that wasn't pleasant. I've never had someone give me a score from the stage though. Uh, so uh, uh, and been in the middle of. I like what you call. I like that you called it a soliloquy. By the way, I liked that <laughs> and, as well. It really elevated what I'm doing <laughs> to a, 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 a ridiculous a, degree. So I just a mad rant that. about something is what I'd say. But yeah. Anyway, uh, before we talk uh, a little bit of Wolves, uh, a reminder that you can get yourself an athletic subscription for £1 a month for the first six months by heading to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. All right, we won't talk too much about Arsenal 2 Wolves 1 as it happened last week, uh, but suffice to say, it was an outstanding result for us in a febrile Emirates Stadium and it helps massively with our top four ambitions. Uh, there were two things that we thought stood out from the game. I was chatting to Amy yesterday about Mikel Arteta and his bold, some would say, substitutions. Amy, you said that uh, quite a lot of people around you, not in the press box because you weren't in the press box, um, we're not particularly taken with the idea of just Eddie for Lacazette, but he obviously what he did is he brought on Eli Nketiah for Cedric Suarez, changed to three at the back, and it changed everything. And you were, you were taken with the confidence of the substitution, weren't you? I mean, in the sense that it, it really did make a huge difference to what was going on. Well, I think that um, there's just become a sort of sentiment that uh, Mikel Arteta generally isn't great at substitutions, and also that. He tends to stick quite rigidly to the formation, but maybe just change personnel. So I think uh, when you could see Eddie on the touchline preparing to come on, there was quite a lot of muttering and wittering and moaning. Oh, you know, what difference is this going to make? Just on, on the assumption that it would be a straight swap for Lacazette. And uh, then when, uh, there was almost a sort of audible, ooh, you know, when the, when the number went up for, Swedric, for Cedric. And um, as our ask blog pointed out, I think quite astutely, he said it was sort of quite Wenger-esque almost, you know, take off a fullback and throw on, you know, all the forwards you've got. And I thought it was just interesting because it was it was a it was a brave substitution. It was an adventurous substitution. It demanded a change of formation. It was risky because it did expose the flanks. Uh, there were a couple of moments where Wolves broke and you're like, but where's the fullback? Ah, okay, there aren't any fullbacks at the moment. And but it was it was in the spirit of let's go for it, and that was so encouraging because I think if it teaches uh, Arteta as well as the players that lesson that you know if you can if you can be daring and instead of being a slave to the system if you like and tinkering with personnel, being able to be more creative with the way that you're playing and your ideas in a difficult moment the rewards can be outstanding. And it's important that the manager, I think, experiences that. Sometimes he's spoken about how it's important for the players to go through these moments where they realise that they can survive with 10 men or they can come back from a goal down or they can, you know, get over these difficult situations, which they've been doing this season much more than in recent seasons. But I wonder whether it's also of significance that the manager has these experiences himself and he now knows to think outside the box a bit, can deliver fantastic dividends. And it was, you know, 
the game sort of took on a slightly new dimension. And the other thing to mention regarding that is that it's really funny, but Eddie just looked different. It was almost as if he'd had a kind of crash course on the weights. He looked bigger. He looked, he had much more presence out there. You know, it didn't seem so much like kind of going through the motions, you know, best effort sort of running around. It was as if he came on with the mentality of, I'm going to be a difference maker here and I'm going to cause problems. Whether that was also because he was part of a pair up front rather than on his own, I don't know. But I think, you know, it brought the best out of him. And in the same way that Arteta's recognised a a shift in Pepe, I think there was a shift in Enketia in that performance. And if he plays like that, then if he makes sure that the minutes he's given between now and the end of the season, he can produce and be... A, a nuisance and a headache and a pest for opposition defenders and be quick-witted and make things happen, then that's going to alleviate a lot of the concerns that people had about um, letting go of Aubameyang, for example. Yeah, all right, there's a few things there. We'll we'll talk about Pepe in a minute. Um, as for Eddie, uh, yeah, it, it did seem like he really made a difference. But James, I want to ask you uh, this in terms of Arteta's substitutions and this narrative that he's not very good at making substitutions. Is it partly the case that he just doesn't have a lot to choose from, essentially? At the present time, I think that's true in terms of attacking options. You know, having lost to Bemiang and not replaced him, we are a bit light there. But it's interesting, I think that... I do think there's an element to which this is perception in that you need certain substitutions to kind of go for you for fit people to sometimes see what you're doing. I mean, the change that he made the other night in terms of going to the back three um, and putting a very attacking player at right wing back is something he's done several times this season. I've seen Saka play there, Pepe played there the other night. He did it in far less successful circumstances, for example, at Nottingham Forest, really chasing the game. So it's a switch that he has made in-game before. I just think that, you know, when it pays off, suddenly people start to look at it more closely. And actually, this has been a very good month for his substitutions because if you think back to the away game at Molyneux, uh, Arsenal went down to 10 men. He brought on Rob Holding for Bukayo Saka. Very different kind of change, albeit to again go to a three-at-the-back system. And it paid huge dividends. Rob Holding was outstanding and Arsenal managed to win that game. So... Yeah, I, I am encouraged by uh, what I'm seeing from Arteta. I think the main thing coming out of the game on Thursday is just that, you know, a point wasn't a bad point for Arsenal. Draw wasn't a bad result. I think going into that game, or certainly going into the two games against Wolves, you would have yeah, looked four. at four points and thought, yeah. that's very decent. But once Arsenal got that winner, I was so encouraged by the way they continued to play, continued to push, continued to look for the winner. You know, the value of three points in the race that's so tight for top four is absolutely enormous. And I really like the ambition and the courage that Arsenal showed in going for that and and what a reward they got. They did. Um, let's talk about Pepe. Um, Mikel Arteta has said this is a very different Pepe since he came back from um, AFCON. Do you see that, Amy? One and you know, he came on and he obviously made the difference. He got, uh, he, he scored the first, assisted for the second. Uh, what's changed? Um, do you think fatherhood has changed him in the 12 hours that he was a father before he came on in that game? What's, what has changed about him? 
If he, if indeed you think he has, um, I think we probably need a bigger sample size to analyse yeah. that properly. I mean, the twelve hours is maybe a bit short. Um, <laughs> his realization of his place in the universe, but as it was a, a very nice. It was a very nice uh, a, a example of his character that you know he decided that he wanted to make himself available as quick, when he probably didn't have to. He would have had an ex, you know perfectly decent excuse to not not be involved. Um, but he made it quite clear, you know, the text. James or James should take this over, really, having written the piece. But I like that element of it that it shows that sort of willingness. It's a bit. It's similar, I suppose, to when Partey uh, came back from the Afcon and had about three hours sleep and a journey from hell and said, "I want to play." And it didn't end. It didn't end that up well, paying yeah. off. Yeah. That's not my point. The point is that if you look at the group and you look at the players and you look at the characters, there is something happening. There is something going on and they all want to be part of it and they're all giving every ounce. And it's evident in those little examples of the players going the extra mile because they want to help the team. Well, James, how do how does Mikel Arteta keep him happy? I mean, we've got he's got two years left on his contract. Um, we've got 14 games left. Unless there are injuries or suspensions, we know essentially the first 12, don't we, really? it's it's it, And after that... You've got you've got Eddie and Ketia, Nicola Pepe, um, Nuno Tavares, one or two others. But how do we keep him happy? He he went for a meeting, didn't he, with Mikel Arteta to ask about game time because he's not getting it. But what's Arteta going to say to him? Yeah, well, they had that chat just before Christmas, and funnily enough, I think the fact that Pepe was going to Afcon probably counted against him a little bit. I think Arteta sensed that the team was kind of evolving towards Gabriel Martinelli and, you know, he wanted a team that he could kind of use throughout January and I think that probably played into his decision to use Pepe slightly less before Christmas. He had a really good tournament in Cameroon, um, scored a couple of goals, got himself an assist. Ivory Coast probably would have expected to go further than they did, but uh, on an individual basis, he played really well. And... I, it's I, listen. I, I don't know quite what to make of this sort of thing. Of it's a different Pepe, you know. The cynic in me wonders: Is this the case of a, a manager trying to extract the maximum from a player because we're sh- we're shy on attacking options and we need Pepe, we need his goals. To be honest, even if that is the case, I'm quite pleased to see it because he has to be integrated. He has to be part of the group. He does have. Tremendous quality inside the penalty area. You know, that goal that he scores against Wolves, it looks straightforward, but I think it's far from it. I'm not sure there are too many Arsenal players who would have been able to take that ball, spin and put it in the net with the ease with which he did it. Um, He is a very natural finisher in front of goal. But the question of opportunity is a fascinating one. And I mean, it's almost forgotten, but Arsenal were without Emil Smith-Rowe on Thursday night. You know, he hadn't trained all week. He'd been ill. And that was partly, I think, why Pepe was, you know, so determined to play because he knew that Arsenal were a player light and he got his chance and he took it. Do I think he's now going to get regular starting place? Probably not. Like you say, we know Arteta's preferences. We know he's got huge faith in Saka, Smith-Rowe, Martinelli. There's not even always room for all of them in the team. But I do think in this kind of scenario where it's a tight game, you're looking for a breakthrough, you're looking for a goal... There are very few players I trust with the ball at their feet inside the penalty area in this Arsenal squad more than Pepe. And trust might seem a funny word for Pepe on the ball because he can be so unpredictable. But that unpredictability 
can be used to his advantage. And when it comes to finishing, there is a cool-headedness about him that I think is slightly at odds with a very youthful, emotional squad. I think in the nicest possible way, he can be a bit of a killer in the box. And we need that. While we're talking about finishing, um, Arsenal have said they're not going to make a decision on uh, Alexandra Lacazette's contract till the end of the season. Uh, the Athletic reported that last week. Would either of you be renewing it at the moment? I mean, it's it's a very emotional time for Lacazette, and you could see what that goal, that the, his face when he scored the winning goal on Thursday night. Um, Amy, he's only ever going to be a squad player next season if we do buy in the centre forward that we want. Um, would you keep him? I think at the right price and for the right length of time, absolutely. I think if it was a long-term deal at a very high salary, it's probably time for the next gen. But I think the influence that he has on the team as a whole, he's loved, he's looked up to, he takes responsibility. We don't have that many senior pros within the group who are kind of almost unblemished in the way that they're regarded, let's just say. And for that reason, I think he's really helpful to have around the place, as well as, you know, he has a specific role on the pitch that he does very well, even if all the ingredients are not necessarily there at the same time for your kind of dream centre forward at the moment. So I think, you know, it's I think it'll be an interesting one because you talk about emotions and I think some of it will be on... Lacazette's own emotions and how he feels if this group does make it to the Champions League and he's such a big part of it will that sway him to do another year maybe at slightly less favourable rates they've obviously addressed the salary uh, situation and some of the highest earners have gone so therefore the kind of like the ceiling I think is less now for the majority of the players they've, they've worked hard at that I presume that Lacazette's still one of the higher paid players. So, yeah, I, I wonder whether he'd welcome that opportunity to go on the Champions League adventure with this group or whether it's just going to be... Uh, he's had a, you know, he's had a, this kind of cycle of his experience at Arsenal and it's time to go and do something else. I guess, I think as much as Arsenal's decision, unless they obviously choose not to offer him anything, which I think, I think it'd be crazy not to offer him something... But it might be down more as much down to Lacazette to make his choice of what he wants as much as people think it's down to Arsenal to make their choice about what they want. James, would you keep him if you had that power? <laughs> to, uh, uh, I'd to certainly offer make him, him an offer. Yeah, I'd make him an offer. Um, whether or not it would be an offer he'd be inclined to take, I don't know. I think I would probably go for something like, you know, what they call like a one plus one. So like a a single year contract with certain performance criteria in it that if he meets maybe there's a an extension or 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 an option that's in the club's hands but if you know we know Leon are interested in him their president's made no secret of that if they come to him uh, you know he's about 30 isn't and offer him a 3 year deal that's going to provide him with a level of security very possibly european football as well you know so i, I would sort of err towards i think he'll he'll leave but I think Arsenal should make him an offer. I think what's happened with the Bamiang changes things. And having some measure of continuity in striking position would be good. And the thing about Lacazette is 
Yes, he's not scoring goals and he, he had the other one taken off him the other night, which I felt for him a little bit. But the team plays well when he's in it. And if Arsenal do make European football next season, I don't think any new striker is going to come in and play 45 games. So someone's got to pick up some of those minutes. And I, I don't see why it couldn't be Lacazette. Yeah. I think he'd play in most games, you know. He'd be coming on as a sub. If uh, he'd start some, I think he'd probably get quite a lot of football. And it would it would make life a lot easier for Arsenal, who obviously intend to bring in one number one striker. But it would be a lot easier if they didn't have to try and bring in more than one striker, which they probably will do if, uh, if Lacazette goes and Nketiah goes. The other thing about Lacazette is a lot of times when players get to this age, certainly we had this experience with Olivier Giroud, one of their major concerns is preserving their international place. But Lacazette is a bit of an anomaly for a kind of high-level European striker in that he's never really had an international place. He's never been a significant part of the French setup. They're okay so for was, forwards, aren't they, friends? They're not doing too bad. But even so, I think when you look at his goal record... I wouldn't say there are many uh, strikers who've you know changed hands for the money he's changed hands, earned the money he's earned, played in the leagues he's played, and got quite so few international caps as him. And I don't know. I mean, I just wonder. That's another element to consider. In some respects, he hasn't got to worry about that making his decision. You know, if his league minutes drop at Arsenal, there isn't that stake attached to it. So maybe he will be more open to it than we might imagine. I don't know. Well, a few more moments like uh, Thursday and I'll be very happy to see him playing for us for the next couple of years. Um, I'd urge you all, by the way, to read Art's piece about the crowd at the Emirates and how crucial it was to spurring on the team. Uh, Amy, you were the uh, the three of us, you were the one who were there. Is the atmosphere, I know we keep asking this, but is the atmosphere changing? I mean, it feels to me like it is. I've got to be honest with you, but I've always been a bit of a, you know, cheerleader for this team and this group but I do feel like there's a connection that we haven't had in quite a few seasons and and what do you think? I think there's a reluctance in the crowd to turn on players or show their frustration that's really evident you can feel that I mean to go one nil down at home and it's you know against a team who nearly score again and it's looking really tricky and it's a game you you ever so much want to do well in. There's no sense that the crowd are going to get on anybody's back or boo at half time or anything like that. It wasn't that long ago that all those scenarios would be expected. That definitely feels like a, a kind of a happening thing that I think the players feel it coming from the crowd and the crowd's feeling it coming from the players. They're feeding off each other, you know, uh, a bit more than than before obviously results help foster that as well and the fact that you know unlike previous few years we're coming into March and going for the top four so there is a different kind of buzz around the place just based on that it doesn't feel like such a fruitless uh season you know but the atmosphere when the goal went in was one of those sort of classics. It really was people sort of like falling all over each other, hugging people they don't know, Limbs, making eye contact with it. people, singing songs, and with, you know, with those huge uh, <laughs> mega smiles that you feel like are unwipe offable. Um, you felt love in the crowd. It was sort of funny. Like at the end, was, my my uh, 
son was down the front and I was waiting for him to come up and meet us on, on the way out. So I was just sort of facing the crowd as everyone was filtering out and just the kind of like giddy expressions on everybody's faces, like like high, like a real natural high. Uh, it's a powerful thing when that many people are feeling it all at once. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I want to mention, just because I thought it was classic, is did anybody notice the firework? Yes. Yeah. Right. I saw a picture of it online. Okay. So there was a, you know, when the final whistle went, there was a big firework that uh, that appeared above in the Emirates sky. And when I got home, a friend of mine called JD, who goes absolutely everywhere, he he lives very close to the stadium. And he had prepared with his wife, who was at home with the kids and the dog, uh, had kind of got a massive rocket like that they, he'd set up. And... Uh, there's a fantastic little clip on his Instagram page of of his wife in her dressing gown at the final whistle going outside, like, giggling and lighting this firework. And then the dog's barking and they're running inside and the kids are laughing. And uh, and there it was. And, you know, it was a, he did it entirely as a wind-up, obviously. And it's it worked because it was like, oh, God, you know, ah. Oh, fireworks above the Emirates for beating Wolves in the last minute and that was exactly the desired effect that he wanted but he had pre-planned just because of the whole celebration thing that, uh, around the Wolves game wouldn't it be wouldn't it be funny to let off a firework so well played to JD's wife who did the honours nice work JD and JD's wife is what I say I, don't, I usually object to fireworks outside of November the 5th I'll be honest with you when they when they start going into December you think oh for goodness sake but uh, in this particular case that's very very funny uh, this is Handbrake Off the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We went a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. This is Handbrake Off, Ian Stone. Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas here. Serious, uh, serious news, obviously, in the world. Um, 
including what's going on, uh, obviously what's going on in Ukraine, but what's going on at Chelsea as well. Uh, Roman Abramovich uh, tried to hand over the stewardship and care of Chelsea to the Chelsea Trust, who turned it down, uh, presumably because if somebody, if whoever it is, comes for the money, they don't want to be liable for about two or three billion quid. And by the way, their, their statement was mealy-mouthed, I think, Chelsea Football Club, mentioning a conflict uh, as opposed to an invasion. But um, uh, there is a piece in The Athletic uh, explaining what Roman Abramovich handing over the stewardship of Chelsea really means, although how how um, out of date that might be now, I don't know. Um, Amy, we had a little chat yesterday about ownership of clubs. Abramovich was the one who changed everything, wasn't he, really? He came in 20 years ago. We were building the stadium. And uh, and then he sort of blew everything out of the water, didn't he? Arsene Wenger has said as much. Yep. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a lot said about sort of sports washing in general lately in, in football. It's a very, very complex scenario. And I think what really is telling on that is you see, for example, if you've been following the response of Russia's group uh, for the World Cup qualifiers and... Um, their refusal to play and then FIFA kind of sitting on their hands for ever so long before finally deciding that Russia can play in a neutral venue uh, uh, as, as a sort of football union or something. I can't remember exactly Federation the Federation or something like that, yeah. Very odd yeah. and, you know, really worrying because that speaks to a sort of higher pressure where they don't clearly feel that they can do the right thing in this case. But, you know, that it's a very strange scenario when, you know, you support football and you have these influences that are so beyond your control and sometimes put you in a bit of a moral dilemma about how sport should be in response to certain scenarios. I mean, obviously, Chelsea, Newcastle, Man City have all had their kind of internal debates about all the uh, overseas money that's come in and how comfortable they are with it. Um, it's the way of the world. But, I mean, you know, in a way, it's... People, I think, looked at that situation with Chelsea and thought, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> Initial reaction before anyone realised it was not, not as big of a thing as it looked like, as if it could impact on the whole club and, and uh, they would somehow fold or be in terrible trouble. But, you know, there's billions of pounds he's put into that club at a time when others haven't been able to compete in the same way. I wonder, you know, I don't think it's going to have much impact, particularly at the moment on on Arsenal. But you look at how Arsenal have always run in this self-sustaining way. But as of late, that feels slightly different. I know the accounts are supposedly coming out shortly. There's been big, big losses at Arsenal and the Cronkies have stepped in to to try and cover those and keep the club competitive. But I do you do wonder about all those years, all that those missing years if you like, where it's been so hard to compete. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's interesting talking to a Chelsea mate yesterday and he said the money Abramovich put into the club, he saw it they see it as levelling up, essentially, that uh, that they could not compete with those clubs at the very top until Abramovich came in and put the money in. And in the end, in the end, if you want to be in the top four, you need a billionaire owner. I mean, James, is it just a case that you just hope that your billionaire owner is a bit less 
awful than their billionaire owner. Well, there, there are very few nice billionaires, I'm sure of that. <laughs> um, it is interesting, though, you know, with sort of sports washing, the more the emphasis appears to be on kind of sporting ambition, in a way, the more effective the sports washing exercise is. You know, people can say, look at Abramovich's passion. He's put so much money into the club, 0% interest loans. You know, it's all about winning. And it's like, well, yeah, because that is effectively the public relations exercise that the ownership of the club is. It's, I have to commend the trustees of the Chelsea uh, Charitable Foundation who have said thus far they're not prepared to take on control of the football club because I suspect they're fully aware that they're effectively being used as a shield in this instance. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I commend them for at least interrogating this properly. I mean, I don't even know if it's going to be legally viable. Um, One imagines should... lawyers would get involved in this sort of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, so it, it, it is, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating situation. And again, all of these things, they do cause you, much like the Newcastle takeover did, to reflect on our own ownership situation. People will have their own... Uh, emotions, feelings, judgments about that. I, I have to be honest, brutally honest, and that I, by and large, I kind of am in a position with the ownership where I feel a bit like better the devil we know. We'll be fascinated to see these financial results and what sort of impact the pandemic has had. We know it's not going to be good. It, it looks like these financial results are going to come with a, a ticket price hike as well, which is not going to go down well, particularly in the sort of current economic context. Lots of bills going up. People don't want to see their season tickets going up. At the same time, there's this huge financial shortfall. So to a certain extent, you can understand it. I suppose what you hope is, we spoke about the atmosphere and how fantastic that's been. And I think a big part of that actually has been getting fresh faces into the ground. You know, a lot of people took a season ticket holiday this year, from what I understand, speaking to people in the box office, which they were given the opportunity to do. And it meant people who've been wanting tickets for a long time could access them. I just hope, of course, that the the forthcoming price hike doesn't change that um, because it has been such a positive this season. Yeah. I mean, the Cronkies, it does feel like there's been a slight change. I mean, I was, it was only... Was it a year ago? At a time, is a very elastic concept the last few years. But I remember being at a demonstration outside the ground in, was it April, May last year? You know, and it was really anti the Cronkies. It was obviously around the Super League. But now I'm sort of ambivalent towards them, really. They're the owners of the club. And, uh, and do you know what? They did spend some money in the summer. And Josh Cronkier did that interview where he talked about the passion and the connection of fans to uh, football, which is completely different to anything they do in America. And maybe they're getting it. I guess uh, time will tell. They're also looking, uh, Amy, I believe, at rebuilding the stadium infrastructure as well. Um, there were, there was, it was raining really hard the other day when there was a game at the Emirates and there were quite a lot of leaks. <laughs> so uh, maybe they need to put, they, they've, they've realised the asset that they've got, perhaps. And they're thinking, you know what, this could be a very successful franchise for us, much as I hate to refer to our club. In that way, there's also the you know um, element of safe standing, which may be coming in. Yeah, one of these days, which will make demand some uh, reconfiguration at the ground. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, listen, we'll have a bigger chat uh, about that uh, at some point. One more thing uh, before we head off into the uh, 
I was going to say sunset, but it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Gabby Martinelli, um, Adam Crafton wrote a piece for The Athletic. Uh, if you have an athletic subscription, you may, may well have read this piece. It was very, very popular. Why was a piece about Gabby Martinelli so popular? Is he... Is he one of those one of those guys that we invest so much so much into our hopes? You know, he feels like he he really could be the future for our club. I think it's partly because of the type of player he is. He's so exciting, and I think it, he shows flashes of potential that now allow you to kind of imagine and project what he could be. Because I always think about when I think the first time Martinelli played against Liverpool in the League Cup and I remember Jurgen Klopp after the game just marvelling at young Martinelli, what a player he could be. And he fits that modern idea of kind of a multifunctional forward so well. You know, he can kind of do it all. He scores goals, he runs hard, he presses, he dribbles, he can be creative. So naturally, I think we get very excited about him. And, and the reason I think this piece was so popular is because People love to hear footballers talking about the art of playing football and providing insights that, as fans, we might not necessarily have anticipated. And when you sit down with a footballer and you go through their best moments or sometimes their worst moments, inevitably uh, they provide a layer of insight that you know you, we wouldn't ordinarily arrive at. And Martinelli is someone who you know, he conducted the whole thing in English. I mean, his English has really come on absolute leaps and bounds. Uh, he's quite a shy guy from what Adam was telling me. Not the most, you know, gregarious or forthcoming. In some ways, he's, he's not a kind of big Brazilian David Luiz figure, you know, huge personality. But he's someone who's quite studious, who thinks about the game a lot and who, you know, is very focused and very driven and has been from a very young age to do this. And I think, you know, he wants to be a big player not just for Arsenal but for the Brazilian national team I think that's yeah. a huge focus for him and actually there's a World Cup isn't there at the end of this year he went to the Olympics he had some success there but I think he'll be looking at this 12 months and really trying to kick on and he'll be looking at Brazil squad and thinking if I can hold down a place at Arsenal if I can score goals for Arsenal I've got a chance and it means so much the Seleção to the to the Brazilians I think that's a brilliant motivating factor for him in 2022. And I'm very excited to see how close he can get, how far he can push it and and what that will mean for Arsenal over the next year. Amy, we've sat on this podcast more than once and you have talked about that goal against Chelsea when he ran 70 yards down the pitch and scored and then folded his arms, apparently not copying the man in the stand, according to the piece. He said he was going to plan to do that and I guess the man in the stand realised that he was and did the same celebration. But was that the moment for you, really, when you saw the possibility, someone so calm, those four touches and then that finish in front of the away fans uh, in such a big game, when we were down to 10 men as well, I believe. I think it was even before that. I think from his very first appearances, he just had this amazing smell for goal. Um, he was so good in the air, which was unexpected. He scored a couple of really impressive headers, which were down to the quality of his runs and his determination. And he has that kind of energy that uh, instinct that I think is really exciting about any top forward, you know. Uh, but it still feels to me, I was interested just now listening to James talking about this 12 months and this this kind of ambition to, to push his way into the Brazil national team. 
because he still looks to me like someone who is evolving. Although he has had moments where he looks very much like the finished product, you still feel like he's figuring out what kind of player he is. The manager's figuring out what kind of player he is. There's so many things he does very well, but sometimes, particularly when he's playing out on the wing, he can have patches in a game where he's quite isolated and you think, "Ah, you know, can we get Martinelli more involved? And I think, you know, his, his game understanding development is going to be the really interesting thing in this next year or so where he learns how to be as effective as he can be by where he positions himself when he gets involved in the game uh having the bravery to kind of maybe I don't know how much sometimes you know you look at him like hugging the touchline and think that so seems like he's been told that that's where he has to be but having that Nous to be able to uh, maybe a bit more freedom to be a bit more liberated where he can drift around up front, maybe more like Thierry. So you're kind of creating more of a hybrid that Saka does quite well, where he he knows when to get into the box or when to stay wide. So he's Saka has that perhaps slightly more enhanced capacity to make and score goals that feels like it's there in Martinelli, but to get it more consistently. Maybe there just needs to be one more notch up in terms of where he is on the pitch and how he's best using his his talent. I'm loving watching these young players developing. It really is a, a joy for me at the moment. Uh, let's have, by the way, the majority of the comments um, on the piece. They're worried about Klopp possibly uh, <laughs> eyeing up <laughs> Gabby. But you know what? Yeah, Klopp's been talking about Saka as well. At the moment, I feel like they they want to be part of the project. I hope I'm right. Uh, Let's have a song before we go. James, what have you got for us? Well, after the Wolves game, it had to be along the theme of celebration. So I went for one more time. One more time, I want to celebrate. Oh, yeah, all right. By Daft Punk because we did get, indeed get to celebrate in front of them one more time. We did. Amy, what about you? Similar motivation behind the song choice. Actually, I was tempted just uh, on the part of um, Kepa of Chelsea to go for Karma Chameleon, but um, <laughs> I, I'm going to go for That Prince was nearly my and... feel-good moment, by the way. <laughs> yeah, well, like, marvellous. Uh, 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 <laughs> yeah, yep. we should, maybe we could do a pod special. Um uh, I'm going to go for Prince and Let's Go Crazy. Yeah. Uh, I'm having Keep On Running by uh, Spencer Davis Group because the commitment and the energy they showed into the 96th minute to come back against the team, by the way, who had not lost after taking the lead for about 50 games, or a couple of years or something. So uh, I'm having that. Um, we're done. This has been... Uh, The Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Thank you to James. Thank you to Amy. And thank you to Abby. We'll be back. uh, Abby, our producer, by the way. We'll be back uh, post-Watford on Monday. See you then. (laughs) 